Good morning, All Nations Church and anyone else logging in this Sunday morning. It's lovely to see you. My name is Leanne and I'm picking up the baton in the relay series on faith over fear. And today we're focusing on the story of Daniel in the Old Testament, events which took place over two and a half thousand years ago in a far off land with strange customs and alien names, but which I believe has a great deal to say to us today in Bedford or London or France or Tanzania, wherever you are, as we negotiate this very strange summer of 2020. Now, I'd be the first to say that there are some very strange books in the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible written before the coming of Jesus. And sometimes you feel that you can't understand too much of them without an advanced degree in historical sociology or understanding what this Aramaic word meant. Now, I don't have any of those qualifications. And so like you, I'm coming to this as an interested amateur with a lot of help from Professor Google. But I think the important thing is to allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate what we do find and to allow it to inform our lives, our struggles, our journey with God to live a more God-inspired life. So let's take a moment to pray for that right now. Father God, take our ignorance and give it your wisdom. Holy Spirit, wash out the blockages and barriers of our limited understanding and open us to your divine inspiration. And Lord Jesus, release us from old ways of behaving to become new creations that are more like you. Amen. Now, if you've spent any time in Sunday school or if you've been blessed with open the book assemblies in your primary schools, you will know the headline stories of Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fiery furnace. Daniel in the moving hand. Daniel interpreting dreams. And it's too easy to see Daniel as some sort of ancient superman, facing down incredible challenges with his superpower of mega faith, barely breaking into a sweat. It's too easy as well to relegate Daniel to that long list of biblical heroes that are nothing like us, we will never be like them, and it's not worth even trying, because after all, we're only human, and that somehow denies the fact that Daniel was also very human. In fact, when we look more closely at his story, we see that his ability to choose faith over fear was a growing and maturing attribute that he and his friends intentionally and deliberately grew and exercised. After all, Daniel was in his 90s when he faced the lions, and he had a lifetime of trusting God in the face of incredible adversity. God had never let him down. So today I'm going to be looking at some of the practicalities about how we can be like Daniel, trusting God in a crazy world. Now, the book of Daniel is cut into two parts. And if you inadvertently open the second half, which is chapters 7 to 12, you will soon get lost in some very confusing prophetic visions given by God to Daniel, predicting the rise and fall of kings and rulers, empires and nations, describing the end times of the world, full of numbers and references that scholars have spent years trying to decipher. But all you need to know about Daniel's visions is this. They proved very accurate about what was to happen in the ancient world, including the coming of Christ. All this goes to show that Daniel was a man that God trusted to get messages right, which underlines that Daniel's life is also worth examining. But the first half of Daniel, of the book of Daniel, is quite different, and it reads, I don't know, more like a Netflix drama of someone's life story in six dramatic episodes, 
What a life it was. If we think we are living in uncertain times, and am I the only person who's tired of hearing the word unprecedented? Then we should know that for Daniel and for many other people in, in ancient times and through the Bible, there was very little about life that was precedented and followed predictable paths. But we can't deny that life in the 21st century is challenging. Even before this pandemic, the world felt very turbulent. There's a word currently popular amongst uh, theorists and writers, which is describing the world as VUCA. And no, they don't mean that nasty parasitic thing that you get under your foot when you go to public swimming pools. VUCA means volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Volatile, meaning unstable and prone to eruptions and crises. Uncertain, impossible to predict. Complex, so many different contradictory pressures. And ambiguous, where meaning shifts into multiple possibilities. That seems a pretty accurate description of our experiences in this world and of the world of Daniel. And looking into the future, his prophecies seem to tell us that it isn't going to be very different. And yet he lived a courageous, impactful life for God, even in that context. How did he do that? What can we take away from his story? I'm going to start by reading you a bit from one of Daniel's prophetic visions, from Daniel 11. And I've abbreviated because it goes on, okay? And the details aren't very important today. But it goes something like this. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise and then a fourth who once he has gained power by his wealth will stir up everyone against the kingdom. And then another mighty king will arise, will do as he pleases. And then his empire will be broken up and given to others. It goes on. Then the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but her power will not last, she will be betrayed. It seems like complete chaos. Then two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other. Many who are not sincere will join them. They will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. But then, and this is the significant bit, the chapter ends like this in verse 32. But the people who know their God will stand firm. The people who know their God will stand firm. We can tell from the headline stories that Daniel was a man who managed to stand firm in a very chaotic environment. And that must mean that Daniel knew his God. Not just knew him superficially or academically or culturally because his mum and dad knew God, but he knew God intimately, personally, powerfully, really knew him. Knew him to the extent where he could and did stake his life on God. And really, that's my takeaway from Daniel on faith over fear. Firstly, that it's our relationship and understanding of God that gives us any ability at all to live by faith and not in fear. And secondly, Daniel shows us that we can intentionally develop that ability by exercising it. So let's look behind the headlines and pick out a few things that we can learn about Daniel to equip us for living a life of faith. So Daniel was born into the aristocracy in ancient Judea around 600 BC, and he was of the lineage of King David. So he was born to rule, lived a life of privilege, receiving the best education, and living a much more comfortable life than the average. And then suddenly, everything changed. As Isaiah had prophesied to King Hezekiah hundreds of years before, 
Judea was invaded by the rapidly ascendant Babylonian Empire, and unbelievably, Jerusalem fell. Usually that would have meant death for someone like Daniel, or perhaps at best a miserable enslaved life of forced labor. But the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, was an unusual king in that he picked out the cream, the best talent of the nations that he conquered, and put them to work for him. And so in Daniel chapter 1, we are told he picked out a selection of Israel's young talents, says, some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. And so Daniel and his friends, probably in their early teens, were force-marched from Jerusalem, away from the promised land, to faraway Babylon. They were exiled, uprooted from family, home, nation, culture. Suddenly they were confronted by strangers who had absolute control over every aspect of their life. They were forced to learn a new language, a new culture. They were even stripped of their names and given Babylonian names. And it is also likely that they were castrated and made eunuchs, as was the custom of the time. It seemed like everything in their lives had changed, and not for the better. What a disaster! Their dreams had not included slavery to a hostile king in a foreign land. Their bright hopes for the future were, were crushed. What must they have thought and felt? What did Daniel feel? What did he react like? How would I react? Rage, depression, anger, bitterness, despair, hopelessness, fear? That would have been totally understandable. But surprisingly, when we next see these young men in chapter 2, and as we see them in the years thereafter, Daniel and his friends clearly worked through those early fears. They found a firm place of faith and became shining lights for God in the Babylonian society they found themselves in. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how they did that, but I think a clue is to be found in a small detail in chapter one about the name changing. These four young men had Hebrew names with spiritual meaning, which directly referenced God. Daniel's name meant God is judge. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is he that is like God? and Azariah meant the Lord helps. And this signifies that their parents, and perhaps unusually in the secular world that Judea had become, were devout, and that they had a living faith which they passed on to their sons. And long before this disaster befell them, Daniel and his friends were helped to know their God. Their parents would have experienced the brief spiritual revival under good King Josiah, where there was public scripture readings, and a renewed commitment to worship in the temple. Daniel had clear knowledge and understanding of what it meant to live in relationship with God. And this perhaps explains why these four, in contrast to all the other Hebrew youth that were captured, were able to stay true to God. They had godly foundations given to them in their youth. So parents, be encouraged. The seeds of righteousness which you plant in your children will reap a great harvest. Daniel and his companions may have been snatched away from their godly homes at a very early age, but the knowledge of their God went with them into that foreign land. And in fact, they never returned to the promised land and to the temple in Jerusalem, but they took it with them. And the spiritual impact of Daniel's childhood and youth equipped him for a life of serving God. But what if you weren't blessed with a Christian home or a childhood that set you up in this way? Well, they say it's never too late to have a happy childhood, meaning that as adults, we can still put in place those things we may have missed out on. And after all, when we are baptized, 
we are told that we're born again. So I would suggest investing time in the basics, learn the songs, read the Bible stories. Why not get a good children's Bible and read it cover to cover? Memorize verses, come to church as a habit, hang out with other Christians. Okay, so maybe you don't have to go to camp and live in tents for that. But it seems that when you establish a deep-rooted faith that enables you, as it did Daniel, to live in faith and not fear. Well, what else can we learn? Well, soon after they arrived in Babylon in chapter 2 of the book, we see Daniel and his friends refusing to eat the food that the king has provided. Essentially, it was to fatten them up after the privations of the journey and keep them in peak physical health. This food, in all likelihood, didn't conform to the strict dietary kosher laws that for the Jews were very important and were an integral part of their covenant with God. But the consequences were clear. Disrupt the plans of the king and face death, even for the officials that were in charge. Well, we all know what happened. Daniel quietly persuaded the official to give it a go for a trial period of 10 days of just veg and water, and at the end of which they were in better shape than those who'd eaten the defiled food. Now today, one might attribute that to better nutritional science rather than the miraculous intervention of God. But the point is this, none of the other Hebrew youth objective. It was only Daniel and his friends who took a stand. And I think this is because of the key verse here, verse 18, that says, but Daniel purposed in his heart. That means he made a decision. He resolved, he actively opted to follow through his faith in a very risky situation. When facing uncertainty and turmoil, Daniel shows us that we need to intentionally choose faith, not fear. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish Austrian neurologist and psychologist who wrote about his experience in surviving Nazi concentration camps when thousands of others died, including his entire family. And he concluded this, Everything can be taken from a person but one thing, that last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. He went on to say, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I'm intrigued that it says that Daniel purposed in his heart. And we often think of a decision as being an intellectual thing, a reasoning out of pros and cons, a weighing up of return on investment. But here it is clear that it was a choice of the heart, of aligning feelings and fear and uncertainty and emotions and heart-thumping risk behind the conviction that he knew his God. And as events unfolded, he was proved right in choosing faith over fear. Now, this relatively small test of faith laid the foundation for more difficult ones that would soon follow. Daniel and his friends prospered in Babylon. A particularly scary episode in chapter 3 was where the king threatened to kill all the wise men and sorcerers because no one could interpret his dream, which wasn't surprising given that he refused to tell them what the dream had been about. But these four devout young men spent time in prayer and petition to God, and God told them what to say to the king. And so, as a reward, they were promoted into positions of authority and influence. And it would seem that it was a happy ever after, that their faith and reliance on God had brought them great rewards. However, a VUCA world tends to be just that, 
volatile, and uncertain. And some years later, these three friends of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to give them their real names, faced their own crisis. They refused to bow and worship to a massive gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, even though the consequence of disobedience was to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Their resolve was not shaken by this fear of a gruesome death, and they say to the king, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. And as it turned out, God intervened, and they emerged from that furnace completely unscorched. But we sometimes forget that they did not know in advance that God would save them. And so my heart is drawn to that phrase, even if he does not. What is it that these young men knew about the nature of God? What is it that they understood in these terrifying circumstances? I believe it's this. Our God is able to deliver us from anything. There is nothing beyond our God. He is totally powerful and loving. It tells us that in Psalm 62. But even if he does not intervene and we die or we lose everything, it changes nothing. It changes not what we choose. It doesn't change whether we die or whether we lose everything. Our God is still God. He is true to his eternal nature, which includes his love for his children. Even if God does not act, it changes nothing. And we're so trapped in our fear about losing our lives or losing wealth or losing status, even losing a teeny bit of comfort, that we lose sight of what those young men saw. I saw a poster which said, what if equals fear, even if equals faith. Well, what if? What if I fail? What if I'm shamed? What if I lose everything? That's fear. The ability to trust God, to live every day resting in his power and his goodness without an agenda, without a presumed outcome, is something that I can only aspire to. It's easy to trust God when we're receiving his blessings. That's why we love all those wonderful promises and why really untrue doctrines like the prosperity doctrine thrive. Because what we really want is a guarantee of blessing. And we do get that, but we get it in heaven. What we really want is for the problem just to be deleted, for that threat to just be vanished. And we do get that in heaven, but we want it now. And of course, if I was facing a fiery furnace, I would absolutely want God to be acting right now. But when we can say, but even if, that's true faith. The promise we have in Christ is sweeter than what this life can give us and the, its rewards. And, and when we realize that, or, or even realistically, if we have a momentary glimpse of that, then we can be liberated from the crushing grip of fear. We can then say, where, O oh death, or redundancy, or divorce, or failed exam, or betrayal by a friend, where is now thy sting? And of course, we couldn't not look at the book of Daniel and ignore the story of the lion's den. This episode takes place some decades later, and in fact, several kings later. That powerful Babylonian empire has surprisingly been overthrown. Daniel predicted that, actually, even to the very day it happened. But in the story of the lion's den, Daniel is in a different place in society, no longer just a captive. He's respected. 
He's recognized as a man of God, albeit a foreign God, and he's valued by the King Darius. However, his prominence arises envy and jealousy. And when other senior officials cannot find any legitimate weakness or corruption in Daniel, they trick the king into a position where he has to carry out his threat to throw anyone who does not bow to him or praise to a different god. The threat is they will be thrown into the lion's den, even if that person is Daniel. Now, Daniel, of course, has been praying three times a day to his god as a devout Jew would, and he's not about to change the habit of a lifetime or the commitment to a true God. And his enemies know that. They deliberately set him up. And when the king realizes this, he is distraught and appalled at what his decree has done. But he has to follow through on it. Now, again, we know what happens. God sends an angel who miraculously closes the lion's mouths. And although Daniel spends the night in the lion's den, which must have been pretty stressful, in the morning, he emerges safe, much to the joy of the king and the dismay of the connivers, who are themselves thrown into the lion's den. Rough justice indeed. But what can we learn from this story? Well, I think it's a message of hope. It's a reminder that God can and does rescue us when we trust him, when we are being wrongly treated. And I want to share with you a testimony from my husband Tim's experience. I have his permission to do this because it's quite a personal one and it was a very difficult time for us. Now, Tim has served for many years in the local authority as a senior leader, focusing on the needs of children with special needs or behavioral challenge or children in care. And he's always seen that this is kingdom work, that he's doing it for God. And he's done so with commitment and success. And so it was a massive shock when a trio in his team, including a close friend, and his deputy made a series of significant allegations and complaints against him. Financial impropriety, unfair treatment, dodgy recruitment, professional incompetence, 28 pages of complaints. And given the seriousness of these, Tim was marched off uh, the floor at work in front of everybody and was suspended while investigation continued. That was the kind of thing you read about in the newspapers. Now, we knew none of these allegations were true and that they were simply distortions of envy and malice. But suddenly there was a very real risk that Tim was going to lose everything, that he was going to lose his job, his income for his family, even his professional registration as a psychologist, which would mean he would never be able to work like that again. And the loss, too, of his integrity and the respect that people felt for him. And, of course, the sense of personal betrayal was huge, too. Now, Tim quite correctly did all the, the correct things about making his emails available and providing audit trails and getting affidavits from other colleagues. But we also asked our friends to pray, and we prayed really earnestly. We asked God to vindicate this innocent man. And I do remember at that time reading the story in Daniel and feeling like we were living in the lion's den and that we had been tossed aside uh, to be torn apart by vicious beasts. Tim was remarkably calm and trusting of God, although he may well have been shaking inside. It is quite hard to tell with Tim. Uh, but praise God, like he did for Daniel, God did close the mouths of the lion. And Tim was completely exonerated, with no case to answer on any of the complaints. And in fact, we discovered later that the ringleader had done something similar in a previous job and had received a big payout as a result. It was all lies and manipulation. 
But we learned, like Daniel, that we could trust God. We could dig into our faith in him, even when faced with overwhelming, terrifying circumstances. And at one level, why did we have to go through that? Why did the young men have to be taken captive at all? Why does God allow crazy kings with their dangerous decrees? I don't know, but I do know that the more those young people and we choose to exercise our faith muscle, the more we are able to live without giving in to fear. What we learn from Daniel and his friends in all those years ago is that they trusted him in the small things. They knew God in the small things. And then when life threw at them very big things, they were able to remember what God meant to them. And instead of obsessing about the circumstance, the what if, they intentionally settled into their what they knew of God and how he had behaved all through scripture and all through their lives. Can we, like them, purpose in our hearts to do the same, to live by faith and not by fear? I think only then will we be able to stand firm in this VUCA world that we experience. And I know that I can only do that if I ask God's help in it. So let's end today's time together in prayer. Father God, we are fearful. We know that, we acknowledge that, and yet we know that you call us to more than that. You've given us the Bible that gives us stories like Daniel, that shows us that you are faithful and that you can be trusted and that you can be trusted even if, even if things don't work out, even when we are unsure about what the future might bring. So Father God, we ask that we would be able to purpose in our hearts, that you would give us the strength, the fortitude, the vision of what it is like to live free from fear in a world that conspires to bring us down, to make us confused, to bring us down to the level of this world. Father, I pray for everyone listening today, and I pray for myself, that I would be able to live in faithfulness, that I would be able to say, and regardless of what the circumstances are and regardless of the outcomes, I stand firm in my knowledge of God, that I know my God, and therefore I do not need to fear. And we can pray this because you give us the spirit to help us to do it, and the grace through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.